Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I have Cheyenne Smith joining us today from the Department of Education. She's the high ability learning specialist there. And we're going to be talking about how services here in Nebraska uh, and whether you're from Nebraska or not. Uh, this is a conversation that I think is applicable to other states and contexts, but specifically, we're going to look at some of that work and the effort being done here in our state. And so, Cheyenne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And before we get started, and we usually launch in the backstory, as I was just kind of alluding to there, we do have a listenership that is outside of Nebraska. And so this might be qualified as gifted potentially yes. in other places. So maybe kind of help us with the lingo on the front end for what people can expect. Absolutely. So high ability learning in Nebraska is synonymous with gifted and talented, highly capable, high achieving, all those different things that different states use. They're all the same kind of interchangeable, but in Nebraska, it is HAL, which stands for High Ability Learning. Yeah, and I've had for a few years now an opportunity to be in attendance or present sometimes at the NAG Conference, which is the Nebraska Association for the Gifted Conference. And it's a great event, and I've learned a lot in those spaces. And so what little experience I have comes from that. What's your backstory as it pertains to being invested in this HAL work in our state? Absolutely. So I grew up in Ohio. I went to public schools in a rural area of Ohio, pretty close to the Appalachian Mountains. And so I went to a very under-resourced and very small rural school district. And we did not have gifted and talented services. And when we did, they were very sparse. And so when I saw a lot of students in our school as we were moving through not only my class, but the other classes, there was a lot of potential and a lot of really smart kids who were not able to meet their potential and to go on and excel in the way that that I think every student is able to because we didn't have access to a lot of resources. And so when I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, I went to Belmont University and started my teacher education degree. My undergraduate degree is actually in English, so I wanted to be an English teacher, and my master's degree is in teaching, and I am licensed as a 612 English teacher. I have also taken graduate coursework to be certified to be a high-ability teacher. So after I finished all of my degrees, I was a middle school English teacher, and I taught gifted and talented students. And in Tennessee, gifted and talented is qualified under special education. So each student had to have an evaluation and an IEP, IEP meeting every year, progress monitoring, all that stuff. So Tennessee had a very robust and very meticulous system for high ability. And then I moved in March of 2020 to Nebraska to take this position as the high ability learning specialist. And I got here and quickly realized that it is so much different than Tennessee. There's a lot of local control and a lot of really great things going on in Nebraska that aren't necessarily known or even promoted by the state. And so that is kind of where I have come to fruition from being myself a student to experiencing high ability in a really state controlled way. And now I'm here in Nebraska trying to get back to my roots of serving rural students who have a lot of potential and providing resources to those teachers. Wow. Thanks for sharing your backstory. It's great to know a little bit more about you and where you come from with all of this and to think too about maybe, I'm sure you're already 
busy about the work the last three years of thinking about some of the best parts from what you took from your experience in Tennessee and seeing where that feeds into maybe a different approach, a different system, like you said, here in our state. Uh, and maybe to set the table for the landscape in Nebraska, I, I would ask before we get to that even, you alluded to it there, I think, the why behind these services, right? And so we want to make sure that all learners are challenged, right? And so I think there's probably that general perception out there, but can we make that a little more robust for folks? These services are imperative. Give us the why. Yeah. So not only academically, but emotionally as well, it is really important for high ability students to receive challenge throughout their school experience. Research shows us that when we have students who come to us, um, when we start that standardized testing in third grade, we have students who come to us at the 99th percentile. And where do you go from the 99th percentile? And so, especially in the no child left behind era, we had a lot of focus on standards-based education. And so our students who were at the 99th, 98th, you know, all the way down to the 75th, 70th percentile, we saw them as doing fine and they're on grade level. And why would we provide additional supports and additional services when we need those supports and services for our students who are not meeting our grade level standards? During that time, we found a pattern that high ability students, by the time they're in eighth grade, have regressed to kind of be at that mean level or at that average level because they're not growing and they're not learning something new every day. A lot of our high ability students walk into the classroom knowing up to 50% of what we're going to teach throughout the year. And so they spend a lot of the time in school bored or not being challenged. And so that can have a real effect on behaviors. Uh, bored or unchallenged students may find something to do or find something to stimulate themselves. It can also cause anxiety, maybe even perfectionism when they are trying to do something completely perfect because they already know the content. And so if their letters aren't completely perfect, they freak out. And so it causes a lot of different issues if we are not challenging our students to think and to use those thinking skills and those perseverance skills, pushing through a challenge. If our students go through school unchallenged, then they get to the real world or they get to college and they don't have some of those skills. And so providing that challenge for them young and often is really important. That really speaks to my heart for some of the work that I sometimes do in a different avenue of things, but thinking about giving students, for example, once when I was in the classroom, uh, the opportunity to work through the materials at their own pace for the better part of about seven or eight weeks, which took some scaffolding to get ready for, let me just be honest. But I there were some students that finished eight weeks worth of what we would normally cover. I don't like to use that word, but like that's essentially maybe the way to communicate it in three they got it done in less than half the time. And when I started to think about what that must have been like for those individuals then compounded over the duration of a K-12 experience that they could get in three weeks done what they otherwise would get done in eight weeks, that's got to be frustrating. That's got to be boring. That's got to be like some of those things that you're talking about I, that really hits home with me. And I, I wonder then, I guess, in moving from Tennessee to here, what have you kind of seen as being the landscape for our house students in Nebraska? Yeah, so as we mentioned before, it's a lot more local control. And so each school district is open to decide whatever services they would like to provide for house students. And technically, by law, schools do not have to provide any services for high ability students. The rule currently states that every school district has to identify house students. They do not have to serve them by that law. And so anything that schools are doing over and above identifying high ability students is over and above what the law requires. And so when I moved here, I was totally shocked to see that 
because it's kind of like one of those things, like, why would you identify a student and say, hey, you're high ability and then not provide any support for them? And so that was a real shock when I first moved to Nebraska. And we can see that in some of the different disparities in terms of location. So we know that Omaha and Lincoln with the higher population of people, the higher population of educators, they have funding and they have the ability to have programs and services for their gifted students to provide those challenges. And then we have our schools who are less than 100 kids K-12 and they don't have enough teachers and they may not have anybody who has ever taken a course in high ability. And so that creates this really big disparity between our cities and our rural areas, which is true in every area, not just high ability. Um, we know our Lincoln and Omaha versus the rest of the state is is completely different in terms of education and educational policy. But when I moved here, one of my main goals is how do we get more access to our smaller schools and how do we get more access in front of educators that are not just in our urban areas? And would you say that, I mean, the teacher shortage has only continued, I think, to get more and more challenging, particularly in areas of special need. And so are you seeing that to be true in this instance? Absolutely. As I have found recently in a scan of the state, we have 131 teachers who are certified to teach high ability learning. Now in Nebraska, you do not have to be certified in order to teach high ability learners. And so a lot of times that position of how person is pushed off on a general education teacher or a counselor. I have a lot of my high ability teachers who do quiz bowl after school, but during school, they teach seventh grade math and then they teach ninth grade AP and then they are the volleyball sponsor. And so the high ability person, especially in areas without a designated person are spread so thin and they are often not compensated for being the high ability person. It's just an additional duty that gets added to their plate. So there's probably a couple contexts within which to think about some of that. And one would, as I understand it, would be that students might be pulled from, uh, let's say, a certain segment of time during their day in elementary, for example, uh, to be able to invest in some of those types of experiences. So speaking to those types of scenarios, what you're saying is, is that there maybe isn't the opportunity to go and spend that additional time. And maybe once they get there, there's also obviously, what are we doing with that time, right? And, and could you speak to those two halves of an experience like that? Absolutely. So I know in our bigger schools, a lot of times students receive a once a week or once every seven school day pull out with a high ability teacher. And at that point they leave their gen ed class, they go for 45 minutes and do something that is more challenging, but then they go right back to the gen ed classroom. And so once every five to seven school days, they get 45 minutes of challenge and, and that's it. And then again, as we said in our rural areas, maybe they don't even have that ability to pull kids out of the gen ed classroom and they have to do it after school, even though students are athletes or maybe they have to take the bus, maybe they have responsibilities after school and similarly before school. And so those services that are not taking place within the school day are not providing equitable opportunities for students to access those health programs. But also on the other side, it's really great that our students in our bigger schools are getting challenged, but if they're only getting challenged 45 minutes a week, is that really something that is going to help them grow in the long run? And so my goal and my push towards 
better and more equitable services is how do we figure out how to get some of these challenging things into the general education classroom. Very similarly to special education, we talk about inclusion and we talk about not pulling kids from core instruction to give them an additional intervention. And so how do we keep from pulling our high ability kids out of core instruction, but give them some kind of differentiation or some kind of challenge that will help them access the general education curriculum at a higher level, or maybe even the next grade levels curriculum, if that's what they need. Right. Because as you were sharing there, the word challenges kept coming up. And in my mind, I'm trying to reconcile what is that more difficult work? Is that additional time allocated to a loftier task or just a loftier task with no additional time? And as you mentioned, uh, if it is, for example, like 10 extra problems that are at the same level they were initially exposed to, I'm not sure that's necessarily meeting the uh, expectation either, if that's simply going to just lead to more busy work or additional work. And so uh, do you find that to be kind of a tough part of the conversation, I guess, when we start to think about what it means to challenge? And I know you ta- you touched upon it there, but I mean, maybe pressing into that a little bit more, some of the misconceptions perhaps of what it means to challenge students who are identified as being high ability learners. Yeah, I talk about this a lot. And I talk about this with districts, with ESUs across the state, that just because an assignment is different does not mean that it is differentiated. And so if you give students a longer assignment or when you're done with your assignment, you can go grab this extra work packet. Those students are smart. They're gonna figure out, I don't wanna finish my work because I don't wanna have to do extra work. Or we have our students who are good students, well-behaved students who will go and they will do the extra work, they'll do the extra problems. But again, it's not pushing them and it's more of the same. And so when we talk about challenge, we wanna think about How do we give students something that is pushing that limit? Instead of giving them more of the same, how do we do something to engage their critical thinking skills? Do they need higher level content? Do they maybe need the next grade level's content? Are they beyond our grade level? Do we need to give them a harder text? Do we need to give them analysis questions that go deeper than our uh, thinking of Bloom's taxonomy? How high are we pushing them in that Bloom's taxonomy? We want to push them beyond those beginning levels. And we really want them to evaluate and create their own ideas and create their own interpretation of things. And so while all students are going to be able to get there is our hope with Bloom's taxonomy, our high ability students are able to get there faster. And so that might look like cutting out those repetitive questions. Maybe they only need to do the five hardest questions on your assignment. And if they can do those, they've showed they've mastered it. And then maybe you give them a challenge like in elementary school, things like Tanagrams or things like Zaccaro's math. There are a lot of different resources that we can give students that challenge those different skills and make them think at a higher level, whether that be spatial relations with things like Tanagrams or whether that be a higher analysis with a higher text in in ELA. And so usually in those pullouts, it's something that is engaging a skill that they're not receiving in the classroom. A lot of them are based on creativity, so and not creativity in the arts and crafts way, but creativity and invention and creating knowledge and constructing how they view a topic or how they view the content. And so, yeah, I don't know if that really answered the question. That's just like kind of where different versus differentiated comes in. Yeah, no, I I love that because where I think some teachers might be inclined to give time for students to go do additional problems in a game format that's on a software piece on their iPad. 
uh, I think uh, uh, it's very different to say, well, what if you gave space for genius hour or space for some sort of problem-based or community-based learning experience where the students are designing a way to think about the content in their local context with a real world issue that, that others might have some access to. Because I think motivation becomes a big part of this as well. And you touched upon it there is that why do I want to continue <laughs> to do things that no one else is being asked to do? And, and and some of that has to be just knowing the learner. And some of that has to be to just, I think, some intentional design with regards to uh, and, and the why and communicating the why, uh, like why this is important to lean into this and continue to push yourself. And are all those pieces part of what goes into professional development as educators growing in this space? Yeah, the first and foremost thing that we can do is awareness. We don't know we're doing something wrong unless we know that there's something better. And so when we know better, we do better. And that's what I found is nobody is intentionally giving high ability learners more problems to be malicious or to not provide the students what they need. They truly think like giving those students more problems that are maybe a little bit harder or maybe just more of the same. They don't necessarily connect the dots that maybe that's not the best thing to do for those learners. And so that awareness and that ability to turn that switch in your head to say, this is something I want to learn about. This is something I know I can do better. And so seeking out professional development opportunities and being able to access resources. There are tons of resources online. I've already done things, problem-based learnings, uh, math resources, ELA resources, already done for high ability students, and we don't always know where to look. And so that awareness of where to find resources and who to ask is a really big thing that we are moving towards. Well, I'm just going to lean into this then, maybe even a little bit out of the sequence of what I might have otherwise asked. What are some resources? What are, what are some of those uh, places you would point folks to who might be interested in this? And I'll show my hand a little bit and say, I also would at some point like to talk a little bit about MTSS uh, and where this sort of fits within that. And so folks that are already making that connection might go, oh, you know, ahead of getting some of these resources, but let's uh, take a moment to share some links. Yeah, the NDE High Ability Learning website is where I house all of my resources. There are webinars on so many different topics on there that I've done or hosted in the past. There is an educators page that has high ability hacks, which are like 10 minute little clips of strategies. I have parent information on my website with links for parents to help talk to their kids about high ability things or parents to talk to schools about high ability. That's where I keep my newsletters, which have all the updates. And usually they have a topic each month. And that's where I put all of the upcoming dates for high ability things, not only in Nebraska, but nationally. We know now that since post pandemic, there are a lot of things that happen online. So there could be an hour professional development from a professor at William and Mary that's accessible online to all of us. And so I keep all of that housed on my website so that I can have it all in one place to send edu educators to. But some other really great resources are books. There are books written for teachers of high ability learners. There are already designed curriculums. There are SEBL books for high ability learners to deal with specific SEBL issues that our gifted students experience that other students may not experience. And there are also websites such as Birdseed and Gifted Guru and Hoagies Gifted. And they all have such a plethora and a variety of resources 
that you click on one link and it's like down the rabbit hole and you can find pretty much anything you want. And even if that's a link to a different website or to a publisher or to an Amazon for a book, it's those are really great resources to go and to find things that you need from identification resources to differentiation resources and even, again, talking to parents. Wow. Thanks for sharing those because I, I do think that that just helps save people time. And I think that dovetails right back into the point that I was hoping we would touch upon here next too. And that's, you said 131 teachers statewide are certified to be high ability learner educators, uh, but that doesn't mean that in places where someone is not maybe allocated to that role, or as we've alluded to here, like the classroom teacher in any and all contexts, right? Doesn't matter secondary elementary, doesn't matter if we're talking about math or English, uh, has the opportunity to push students with these challenges. So I think we can certainly think about that as being part of the MTS framework, right? And so can you kind of uh, make that connection for folks who maybe are very much aware of what they're trying to do with tier one supports for students with special needs and maybe haven't, like Tennessee has done, for example, made that connection to say, oh, well, well this actually applies to our high ability students as well. Yes, when I took this position, one of the first things that I encountered was MTSS and Nebraska MTSS is very unique in the level of support at the state, the regional support model and the buy-in from everybody from the department down to the school district level. It's a huge initiative and a lot of states have small pockets of MTSS, but Nebraska has also um, made it part of the continuous improvement process and made it part of reporting and all those different things. And so it's really unique in the fact that it's so built out. And so that makes it a lot easier to plug into. And when I when I first started this position, I ran into MTSS, I saw it and just light bulbs. It makes a lot of sense that we can use multi-tiered systems of support for high ability students. And so that became an immediate focus and passion on my end. And with the help of the Office of Special Education, uh, Amy Rohn specifically, and the Nebraska MTSS team, we were able to propose and launch uh, what we're calling the High Ability and MTSS Project. And that is the systemic integration of your high ability services, identification, and anything to do with that into your existing MTSS framework. Because identifying high ability students is a database decision collecting data. We know that currently in the state, we're not identifying students of color, students who are English language learners, students who are in special education or of low SES in Nebraska, nearly at the rate that we are identifying uh, students who are not from historically marginalized populations. And so we currently identify students primarily with a single high stakes test score. It's usually the 90th or 95th percentile plus on an NSCAS or a MAP. And when we think about MTSS and data decision rules, that really opens up that door for more students who don't necessarily have the highest test score, but we can see their progression of maybe they're consistently in the top 25% of their class and they're doing really well in this subject and they are displaying this trait that their teacher is showing us. And so that ability to use group decisions and shared expectations for all students has really driven the work to the next level. And so the general education teachers who are currently participating in our pilot program received seven professional development 
sessions last year about differentiation, SEBL for high ability learners. Um, there were four modules just on differentiation, one on pre-assessment. What do you do after pre-assessment? And so they were able to take all of those high ability strategies and use them in the gen ed classroom in that tier one. And from there, we can still use data to say, this student is doing really great with additional differentiation in tier one, or this student is blowing that out of the water and maybe we need to look at doing a more intensive intervention like an independent study contract or pulling them out for a small group setting, or maybe we need to, on that third tier, accelerate them a subject or accelerate them a grade. Maybe they need early entrance to kindergarten or early entrance to college. And so all of those different decisions that we make with MTSS frameworks can be applied to high ability students as well. That, as you're sharing that, it reminds me of some knowledge I have about even my own kiddos who go to a school here in Nebraska, whose health services are very much that, that it kind of comes in tiers and there are tiers where it uh, really just looks like some very intentional efforts being made in that tier one support. And then others where it, it has for students led them to be removed from class to meet either in the building or taken to the, in the elementary, taken to the middle school uh, for some different challenges. And so really cool to, uh, thanks. That gives me some connection with some of the things that I know to be true within the district that my own children are a part of. And so with that project, and is that something also I'm sure we can find on the house site? Yes. Okay. And I will certainly make sure that we put that in the resources so folks can check that out in the show notes uh, as the link will be there. Uh, and so it's also my understanding, and I didn't, I'm so excited to learn more about this, uh, that there are revisions to rule three. Uh, you'd mentioned that before we started recording today. And so grateful that we'll have a little bit of opportunity to learn some more about that. So yeah, what revisions have been made and, and uh, what does that mean for schools? So we are currently in the early process of revising rule three. It'll probably be two, maybe three school years before it goes into effect by the time we get everything through, everyone that it needs to go through. But it is important because rule three has not been updated since 1995. So it is a very dated rule and it has some dated language as well as dated policies. In Nebraska, I mentioned that each district has to identify students but does not have to provide services. Within that, there are no regulations on how districts have to identify students. And so we have 242 different identification systems in our state. And so there's a lack of portability between districts when we think about high ability programs. Some schools accept high ability students from other schools. Some schools make them go through their testing process or their identification process. And we know that maybe we aren't using the best practices across the state when we're identifying students. And so our goal is to somehow provide additional constraints around identification while still honoring local control. So we want to make sure that we are providing the best practices and say within these best practices, you have X, Y, and Z choices. And so that makes it again, not only portable across the state, but we know that we are trying to create equity across how things are being done. Love the vision for that. And that's uh, certainly the a, a little bit of just the challenge. I don't think that's a bad thing to even say that it's challenging to respect and honor local control uh, and what that does to be able to serve the unique needs of students wherever they are. And, but then at the same time, too, like you said, if, if students move um, or if we can kind of 
do things collaboratively to make ourselves a little bit more uh, effective and efficient in supporting students. So that that's always helpful. So, uh, so thanks for your work in that bucket <laughs> as well. Sounds like you got a lot of things going on. And with that, then I guess, and I think we alluded to it earlier, but just uh, making sure that we have uh, training for folks uh, that is accessible. And so you referenced a number of resources on the house site. Is there anything more that we've not discussed uh, that you'd like to point people to as being supports of this effort and this work? Yeah, please reach out to me. My email is always open. My phone line is open. If you reach out to me, I can either provide you with resources, provide you with support, or I can point you to a person in your ESU that can provide supports. Almost every ESU has a designated person who does high ability things. And so I can put you in contact with that person. I go to ESUs and do professional development. I go to individual schools and do professional development. And so I would say really just reach out to me and I can provide you with what you need to make your health program better, whether that be a resource or professional development. Excellent. And thank you so much uh, for sharing those things. And so I'm really grateful that we have had the opportunity here today to learn a little bit more about our house services here in Nebraska. I'm grateful for all your work. Uh, it sounds like you've been really busy in the three years time <laughs> since you've gotten here uh, from Tennessee, but really grateful to have you in this role and advocating for these things, Cheyenne. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.